Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. Listeners have asked us to provide pointers to some of the resources we talk about on the show. We now have links to books and articles referenced in recent podcasts that are available on our website. We also offer full transcripts. Go to jimruttshow.com. That's jimruttshow.com. Today's guest is Brendan Graham Dempsey. Brendan's a writer whose work focuses on the meaning crisis and the nature of spirituality in metamodernity. Welcome. Thank you very much, Jim. It's an honor to be here. I appreciate it. And yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, this should be fun. I just finished last night Brendan's relatively recent book called Emergentism, A Religion of Complexity for the Metamodern World. And lots and lots of interesting things to, to dig in here. Uh, let's start with the meaning crisis. What is it? <laughs> well, if you have the time and have 50 hours and want to go check out John Verveke's very popular YouTube series on that topic, uh, by all means, check it out. It's definitely worth your time. The meaning crisis, though, is, I think, a nice sort of shorthand phrase to refer to a kind of cultural situation that we find ourselves in where the more familiar kinds of meaning-making structures that used to exist in society are no longer functioning adequately. And so, you know, Jamie Weald is a good job talking about this in terms of meaning 1.0 and 2.0. If meaning 1.0 was sort of traditional religion, meaning 2.0 was, was sort of the, you know, secular liberalism of modernity. Both of those have seemed to not really be satisfactorily holding up to the complexity of our current situation anymore. And so we find ourselves kind of adrift. And the meaning crisis, again, is just a, a term that I think very succinctly names that and allows people to be able to orient themselves towards this sort of cultural existential gap that we're experiencing where our sense-making capacities and our sense of meaning and purpose in the world doesn't really seem to have any place to be grounded and that we also exist in a very fragmented society as well so that people are making meaning in different ways, if at all. So yeah, the meaning crisis kind of refers to, to that and it's good and, and and welcome and helpful that people like Verveke and Wheel and others have already kind of laid the groundwork for that idea so that now we can kind of do what I'm interested in, which is try to tend to this sort of cultural issue and and speak to it and come up with solutions and reconstruct things. Yeah, cool. Yeah, I watched the 50 hours video. It is very good. I also condensed it down to 10 hours of interviews with Verveke himself, mm -hmm. five two-hour episodes. And amazingly, they are amongst my most popular episodes of all time, despite the fact that they're pretty intense. So if people want to get the uh, 50 hours in 10, 80% savings, 80% off today. Check out the John Verveke Meaning Crisis series on the Jim Rutt Show at jimruttshow.com or your favorite podcasting app. You point out that despite the fact we're living in this amazingly physically rich time, right, where a welfare mother in many ways lives better than Louis XIV, nonetheless, 
there's some very disturbing statistics, particularly amongst the younger folks. I mean, needless to say, I'm an old fart, but and you're kind of a medium fart there, I'd say. <laughs> but if you look at the statistics people like Jonathan Haidt are putting out and other lots of other people, uh, particularly the mental health really seems like it's suffering amongst people today, especially younger people. Yeah, definitely. How would you tie that back? Well, there, there, there are multiple kind of symptoms, as I kind of think about it, that are sort of natural offshoots of this inner crisis. And so, yeah, I, I think that those are directly correlated. And I talk about that briefly in the introduction to the book. I mean, yeah, you look at the statistics and suicide rates are at epidemic levels. A statistic actually I got from Wheel's book was that more people today are dying from basically the disease of despair than, you know, war, conflict, starvation, that sort of a thing that all combined. And so we we do have sort of unprecedented material comfort, but we also have a seemingly unprecedented existential malaise and maybe worse than a malaise, let's say, because clearly it's having, well, existential impacts on people. So yeah, I think that I think that those two things are directly related. And I go further than that. I mean, it's not too too far of a leap, let's say, to relate people, say, committing suicide or living with depression and a sense of meaninglessness. That seems fairly straightforward. But I go further and I also see systemic issues like climate change, global wealth inequality, things like that as also being symptomatic of a deeper internal uh, lack in the, in the sense that the way that we interact with each other and the way that we relate to the world is informed by some deep psychological structuring mechanisms. And if we don't have a sense of purpose, if we think that nothing matters, if we think that really we're all just sort of a cosmic accident around for a little bit to kind of get ours and then, you know, check out, it's kind of clear how that mentality leads to a world where we slash and burn, where we're just rapacious consumers. And as you point to, you know, like our material comforts exist and have been kind of exponentially increasing, but that as it's also been academically shown, doesn't correlate with deeper senses of happiness, at least at a certain point. You know, you get past your sort of Maslow's hierarchy of your uh, physiological needs met and that sort of a thing. And that, and that sense of happiness sort of tapers off until you find deeper, kind of more spiritually fulfilling ways to ground yourself in the world. So yeah, I think that people, unfortunately, though, might not be aware of that as we kind of in it, we're always chasing, right, the next sort of ephemeral high, that kind of next pleasure. And so we fall into these consumeristic mentalities as a result of yeah, that deep kind of chasm that, that uh, where there should be something more enduring and valuable and meaningful. It might sound trite and maybe kind of a trope, but I do think that there's a, a deep truth to it. You know, we're, we're trying to fill that hole in various ways and uh, we're sort of shoveling resources from off the planet to fill this insatiable hole in ourselves. And so I think it has a broader implications than just the mental health crisis. It, it goes further than that. Yeah. In fact, I, I would argue we do in the Game B world that there's a, a cyclical phenomenon here, which is the you know, things like existential angst about climate reduce mental health. And while mental reducing mental health reduces your ability to do anything about climate. Yep. Yeah. John Verveke would call that reciprocal narrowing, right? You know, it's, you, you have these processes that cycle in on themselves and you get a downward spiral. 
Yep, exactly. Let's put a little bit of historical context here. You know, there's a long line of cultural evolution theories, et cetera, but let's let's just take a look at, from your perspective, too, the pre-modern and the modern. Hmm. Tell us what those are approximately and how they relate to people's senses of meaning. Yeah. So I think in many ways, this is the easiest sort of cultural division to intuitively grasp. And I do think it's in some ways kind of kind of the most profound division. You know, we tend to divide the way we think about time into AD and BC, but really I think the advent of modernity marks its own real epoch in terms of like looking in the past and clearly dividing this profound new sensibility that emerges. But I would say pre-modernity is, you can kind of roughly think about as before around, oh, I don't know, 1500 or around the Renaissance period. It's basically the, we tend to equate it with sort of the medieval world, but it reaches obviously further back than that. It's, it's, a, it's a worldview system though that's held together by a certain kind of holistic thinking about reality. And it's in that context, full of meaning, it's rich with significance. You know, you look back to the way people used to think about the world and their relationship to it, you know, anywhere from, uh, again, the medieval period to further back into antiquity. And they would see all these correspondences and resonances and things meant things. You, You could read your fate in the stars and cure, say, the the illness of your lungs with a, a, a plant that looked like a lung. And so there are all these sorts of rich correspondences in the world that you related to that seem to suggest that reality was this really rich tapestry full of symbols, full of meaningful relationships. And it was sort of this process of decoding that seemed to be never able to be fully plumbed because everything was so intricately caught up with, with everything else. So in that context, in the pre-modern context, yeah, I mean, everything we would say is religious. Everything was spiritual. But of course, those ideas don't really even exist until you get to modernity and you begin to appreciate that that there's a differentiation that then happens, right? So we'll, we'll probably touch on this at some point, but you can also very, I think, crucially interpret what happens in a developmental way as it relates to the disembedding that occurs. Charles Taylor wrote a book called The Secular Age. It's all about kind of the the transition from the pre-modern to the modern and the associated shift in the rise of secularity. And he he talks about the great disembedding. And so he he, he names some of these phenomena really well, but you can understand it psychologically and uh, the relationship between cultural evolution and uh, individual psychological development is something I touch on in the book a bit, but it's something I'm very interested in. Yeah, we'll get it. We'll get to that later. Okay, great. So yeah, so if that's uh, pre-modernity kind of, you know, defined by, characterized by religion, piety, meaning, and a sense of being embedded in a kind of infinitely rich tapestry of, of associations, correspondences, and relations that all had meaning to individual life. Then you get to modernity, which you know starts to emerge in full force with the Renaissance, and then of course in the Enlightenment and the scientific revolutions, and that's marked by a very different worldview. It's marked by a notion in which the the subject kind of fully disembeds themselves from that rich tapestry and starts to see meaning as something that's basically in your head, right? It's something that only exists subjectively. With the advent of you know, scientific reductionism and and mechanistic and deterministic thought that happens with Galileo and Newton, kind of the early scientific revolution, there isn't meaning. You can't go outside and see meaning. You can't go outside and, and look at the relationship of, of things. And, uh, and 
and find anything that in the pre-modern world would have been, you know, God's creation or the divine plan or whatnot. There you start seeing reality as particles in motion and forces acting on each other. And so this starts to generate a whole new worldview and a whole new way of being in the world. And that leads all the way from, you know, the scientific revolution through industrialization and of course into our kind of modern now digital infrastructures. But that profound bifurcation point between pre-modernity and modernity is really, it's the crux, I think, of where I locate the meaning crisis beginning. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, John Verveke makes a big deal out of the fact that the axial age was really the foundation for what you were calling pre-modernity. There were earlier epochs before that. And the distinguishing characteristics of at least the winners of the axial age were a two-worlds view, right? That there is the mundane world of the physical, and then there's some other world. Imagine, let's say, in a Christian mythology that's you know well-known in the West, there's heaven and there's earth. And the, the Norse mythology had a much more complicated one than that, in fact, and so did the Greeks. But there was a separation between here on earth and somewhere else, and that that was sort of foundational to that pre-modern worldview, while the modernist worldview we could call monist, that there's a single reality, you know, the the world that we know, and it may be more complicated than we know, or even can know, as some people say, but it's still one substance. And that, that, that longing for the second world is perhaps part of this meaning crisis because we were so conditioned culture and so much of that still is embedded in our language. You know, it's amazing how much of our language, for instance, comes from Shakespeare, you know, a, a 16th century kind of guy. And so, you know, that, I think that's a really, uh, certainly another really big part of it. And then, you know, you said, there's something else you said that I was kind of surprised, and I'd love to hear your thoughts about it. It's kind of an aside, but that's all right. You wrote, surprising it may sound, the categories of subjective and objective only come to full prominence with modernity, meaning people tend to blur these categories much more in the past than we do today in the modern world. People separate their experience of reality from reality itself. In the pre-modern world, this was not done in the same way or to the same degree. I did so. I looked. At, I looked that up, and I typed in some things like, "What were the Greek views, the ancient Greek views on subjectivity?" And I did find some support for your conjecture there, but also some pointing in the other direction. Epictetus and some of the later Romans, Seneca, Lucretius, others seem to have views of the subjective that were not dissimilar to our modern ones, but it does seem to be something to that. Maybe you want to talk about that a little bit. Sure. I mean, that's a really rich and important topic. So it's actually, yeah, definitely more than than tangential or, or an aside. So there's a couple things I, I guess I could say about that. One is I think it's important to disentangle cultural evolution from sort of psychological development. And you have to kind of, yeah, disentangle those two things that are intricately related and have all sorts of feedback loops involved. So individuals at various times in prior cultural epochs might have achieved a certain level of disembeddedness from their environment in a greater sense of the subject-object split. But if you're looking at the what characterizes sort of the nature of broad cultural epochs, then you're dealing with vast aggregates of people who might all be at different sort of psychological developmental stages. And so you're sort of looking then at the aggregate of that experience and the aggregate of that culture. So, I mean, you can go back to the, yeah, the 
you know, the uh, Athenian Renaissance and see people like Socrates and Alcibiades and Plato all talking with a sort of subjective appreciation that we can recognize today. But in many ways, they were they were certainly in the minority at that point, just given their ability to access uh, levels of education and the sort of the privileged capacity to engage in deeper psychological development, let's say, which certainly in, in ancient Athenian society was not um, was not broadly distributed, right? And so, if you move into an industrial context where um, you know you have things like mass education and that sort of a, of, of a thing, then you can see what I kind of think about as sort of a Flynn effect that occurs through psychological development over time, and that leads to a deepening of the subject and the sense of the subject-object split over time. So, one of the ways you can even think about modernity itself and the split from pre-modernity to, to modernity is that culture kind of reached a sort of tipping point where through various reasons and and mechanisms, the majority of the population, let's say, reached certain kind of modes of psychological depth where that bifurcation of subject and object was more pronounced than in the past. And that was a huge factor for kind of propelling, for being the vehicle for the the sorts of thinking that would emerge in the uh, Renaissance and the Enlightenment. Jean Piaget, a developmental psychologist, talks about that way of thinking as formal operational thinking, right? And uh, if you go back in time, you basically don't see formal operational thinking except in little kind of, you know, fits and starts amongst the elite like Plato and, and uh, Pectus or whoever. But it's only in sort of the, the last 500 years that you get the cultural institutions that allow for formal operational thought to be sort of inculcated and enculturated in people in a mass scale. And so that starts to change the culture. So that would be one way of thinking about it. But if you're looking for kind of more evidence along these lines, there's I'm I'm writing a kind of my next work is sort of about this topic in many ways. One one thing that people uh, can point to, for example, is if you read Homer, and I was a classicist originally, that's um, what I'd studied in in college. So I have great love for the the, the classics and and especially for Homer. But if you read Homer, there's not a lot of internal world there. There's not a lot of yeah, you get Achilles' rage and you get this and that. But for the most part, it's very superficial, let's say, but in a very pleasant and, and, and profound way even as well at the same time. But that kind of psychological depth and inner reflection just was not, you could say, normative at the time. You know, you're not going to find a Soren Kierkegaard back in, uh, you know, 800 BC, let's say. Or if you are, they're just going to be, I don't know, some wild, crazy shaman who no one knows how, how to make sense of because they don't fit into the cultural code at all. So the yeah the relationship of individual psychological development which is tied to the deepening of the subjectivity versus the objective world that plays out in really fascinating and complex ways with cultural evolution and one of the things that's most fascinating is to chart that progress which I'm only able to do very briefly in in this book but I want to do more in, in later works. Well, that'd be cool. I'd love to read that. Which now then gets us to one of the next big ideas you have in the book is that these are all probably interrelated. I'd love to hear how you think these things tie together, which is that reductionism really became one of the great tools of modernity, where, as you you described some fairly eloquent language, you know, the world was, all these things are interrelated. And if you try to, you know, and we know from the scientific method, uh, if you think about the world that way, it's really hard to make any progress. I made 10 changes, which one mattered, right? If you're going to have a controlled experiment and reduce it to a single variable with a control where we don't make the change, then you can make some progress. But that comes at a cost. So talk about the, let's call it the emergence of reductionism. 
Yeah. So that's that's exactly it, right? And and it is all related because before you're able to differentiate parts from the whole, you live in sort of a an undifferentiated kind of confused holism. And that is very much the mentality that characterized the pre-modern world, you know, and and mass and large. And it's only with the advent of very intentional mechanisms and approaches, methodologies to to separate, to differentiate individual parts from the vast whole that gets the whole scientific enterprise going. And then again, kind of leads to that ultimate break between the pre-modern and the modern worlds. As you say too, it comes with a cost, but at first it's, it's a huge boon. If you are living in a state of total embeddedness, you you know, the word, a word like holism sounds maybe attractive to many people, again, especially in our kind of fragmented and, you know, a fragmented age that's riven by a meaning crisis is, oh, holism, that sounds very full of meaning. And it is, is in the way we've been talking about, but not in the way that ultimately leads to a deeper understanding of reality, because you haven't even begun to make that initial differentiation process that can allow you to understand how all the parts then relate to the whole. So a confused whole is very different from an integrated whole. So you need to do a differentiation process first before you can start identifying the parts of reality. And that's crucial because only when you have the parts can you begin to see how parts interrelate, interact, and then form emergent wholes. And thus you can start to trace that you know, evolution from a kind of confused pre-modern holism to a kind of very atomistic, mechanistic, reductionistic early modernity. And then you, you know, that leads to the kind of complexity sciences that, that, that have emerged in the past hundred years or so, because once you have the parts, then you can think about the holes and how they integrate and, and relate to each other. Yeah. Does that answer that question? I mean, I could try to yeah, perfect, perfect, perfect. That was perfect, just what I was looking for. Yeah, and it's a point I make all the time because, you know, we do find in the world of people that both of us travel around and about in, people have this reflexism, reductionism bad, holism good. I go, uh, well, sorry, you got to have both, right? The idea of a series of holons, for instance, that build up makes a lot more sense to me. And when I'm trying to explain complexity science to people, one of the, one of the ways I do it sometimes is to say that, you know, complexity science is the study of the dance. But to understand the dance, you also have to understand the capacity of the dancers, right? And, you know, to separate one from the other makes no sense. And so this, you know, move from the initial low-hanging fruit of reductionism, which did produce an unbelievable takeoff in human knowledge and a new way of seeing the world that was far more accurate. Because even somebody as bright as Aristotle, you know, one of the smartest guys that ever lived, when you read his stuff carefully, you see that it's a it's a melange of critical thinking, empiricism, religion, you know, superstition, all kind of blended together. And he treats them all essentially as evidentiarily equal, which to a, you know, to a modern scientific mind just seems like a weird thing to do. But that's how minds were in those days. And it was kind of interesting. And to be able to, to accomplish as much intellectually as Aristotle without the modern tool of reductionism is amazingly impressive. But you know, as we know from you know our study of the medieval world, they never reached that level again. You had kind of Aquinas, which was Aristotle plus even more bullshit. You know, very <laughs> acutely reasoned, but nonetheless didn't go past Aristotle in any way. It wasn't until Galileo finally said, "You know, let's check and see if Aristotle was right." And then they go, "Whoops, he wasn't at all." 
as it turns out, about some fairly fundamental things. And that from that point, reductionism and empiricism grew, and when that gave us modernity. But we do, we do live in the, a disenchanted world on the other side mm-hmm. of that. Yeah, I would, I would totally agree with with all of that, and I, I guess I would yeah pick up where you left off there, which is as incredibly insightful and kind of world opening, horizon opening as the modern project and the scientific revolution were. They did engender a a disenchantment, a loss of a sense of meaning, and a loss of a sense of relatedness of things, and a relation of the self to the world and a sense of the the self to the whole. And so I think that, I mean, this is sort of the main, I guess you could call it a, a, the, the thesis really of the book uh, is that with the advent now of complexity science, we are finally getting to a place where we can regain a sense of holistic appreciation and understanding of the world while also having our sense of meaning and profundity and spiritual connection with it restored as well. And so that is sort of to communicate that message is really what the book is trying to do, not just in sort of a look at all the stuff that complexity science has to say, but actually to go further than that and say, all right, now that complexity science has revealed this vision of the world for us, how do we frame that in a way that really starts to connect to our souls again in, in, in the way that, uh, you know, pre-modern religion did, but now informed by modern insights? Perfect setup. My next question was going to be to note that your proposed solution is emergentism, a religion of complexity. But let's start with what do you mean when you say complexity? Mm. I say a good working definition of complexity is parts in relationship to other parts that form greater wholes. So something becomes more complex if it has one, more parts, and two, more connections or relationships between those parts. And so that's basically the working definition of complexity. It's parts coming together in webs of relation to form holes with new properties that aren't found at the level of the parts, and hence emergent. Yeah, that's the idea of emergence, yeah. I like to add another distinction that's becoming more popular in the complexity science arena, and that is the distinction between complicated and complex. For instance, you might say that a 787 aircraft is very complicated. Lots of parts, they're intricately interacted, there's many systems that interact, etc. But Here's my my own definition, which I probably stole from somebody. So whoever I stole it from, sorry about that, which is in a complicated domain, you can take the thing apart and put it back together again, and it still works because the information is essentially in the structure. While if you look at something like the market or life within a cell or within an animal, you can't take it apart and put it back together again because a lot of the information is actually in the dynamics as opposed to the actual material structure. And so, and as it turns out, reductionism can only tell you a certain amount. It can tell you less about complex systems than it can about complicated systems. And we start looking at you know, where's the frontier of knowledge today? A lot of it's in the domain of the complex because anything that's to do with the economy, with society, how does society react to the invention of social media? That's a classically complex problem. And so I, I would add that as well. You mentioned right before we took off, when I took off, concept of emergence, obviously a, a critical component 
in in this whole view. Uh, talk a little bit about how people should think about what is emergence. Yeah. So I use the word in in ways that I'd say form a kind of cluster of connotations and relationships. So I have a background in poetry as well. So there are sort of kind of denotative descriptions or definitions of emergence that you might find in a textbook, but I'm also trying to go work also with some of the etymological significations and whatnot. So I'll just throw that in up front because I don't want to suggest that there's just one sense to emergence in, in emergentism. But in the more kind of basic, say, textbook account of emergence, it is, as I was referring to, you get emergent properties when there is an irreducible aspect or parameter of the system that comes online with a level of interaction of parts that you can't find lower down. And so there are different ways of thinking about this. There are different ways of theorizing it. In fact, I would even argue that there are different um, ideas about emergence itself. I think that as complexity science develops, we'll start to realize that there are more more kinds of emergence than, than we initially kind of thought when we lumped all that stuff together in one term. But as a kind of catch-all category, I would say that that basically does it is, yeah, when things come together, they create novel properties that if you just look down to their parts the way a reductionist would, you won't find them there. So there's a level related to all this of scale and the idea of levels itself, that things emerge at, at different levels of complexity, and therefore you actually have a sort of tiered nature of reality that starts to get introduced through emergence, that as you zoom in on things, certain things might disappear, but as you zoom out, they'll emerge. So there's a notion in which, and this was a part of the kind of movement of what was called the British, British emergentist movement, who were some of the folks who were pioneering this line of thought philosophically in the late 19th century and early 20th century, this becomes really important, the kind of tiered hierarchical nature of reality when we appreciate that parts coming together to form new holes have novel properties that then can only be assessed at that level. And then we have to consider those properties on their own terms, so to speak. So that's that's uh, the kind of basic idea of emergence. However, as I say, I kind of expand upon that. The etymological meaning of emerge is actually the opposite of submerge. So we can all have our sense of you know what that means. You put something into the water, right? But to emerge means to come out of the water. And so there's this, I think, very profound just uh, concept uh, lying in the background of emergence that is something emerging out of out of the waves, something emerging out of out of what's been covering it, something that had been latent is is coming out and is is gaining expression, uh, sort of seeing the light of day. And so there are a couple, in, you know, uh, poetically you can think about that as like a the way Michelangelo talks about freeing from the marble the face that's that's in there or or this or that. But that idea of emergence is important too because when zooming back at kind of the largest scale and thinking about this cosmically, emergence is really what characterizes the nature of cosmic evolution as a whole. Something is coming out of cosmic evolution, and that something is inherently related to some really profound ideas like consciousness, free will, uh, goodness, things like that. So that starts to get into some of the spiritual implications of an emergentist paradigm. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, one of the examples I like to give because it's kind of more homey and tangible on emergencies to think about the fact that at some point there was a bunch of chemicals and they somehow 
uh, if you looked at just the chemicals, you would not be able to predict life uh, unless maybe you were, well, nobody at the time could have. And then we get life. Ah, it's sim- very, very simple something, something like a bacteria. But from that, would you ever predict eukaryotic cells? Probably not. Once those existed, would you predict the kind of multicellularity that led to us? Probably not. Would you have projected tissues and organs and systems? And then would you have predicted ecosystems? So these are classically new classes of phenomena that have their own lawfulness that's distinct from the lawfulness of the level below. Now, a, a full human never violates the laws of physics, but the life of a human is much more than just the rules of physics. I, I think that framing it that way is great. It's perfect because it really then starts to tie the insights of emergence to the meaning crisis. I think that a lot of people go through their whole life after they reach a certain kind of educational phase or what have you, after which they they look at themselves as just a bunch of particles. They're a meat suit. You know, I've known many doctors, for example, who who unfortunately get rather depressed. And I can understand why if you're dealing with bodies as though, you know, well, they're just meat, you know, and, and you've got to think that way to some degree in order to do, you know, advanced surgery and whatnot. But the mentality that carries with you that I think is increasingly pervasive or has become increasingly pervasive is that we are just physics. We are just matter particles bumping into each other. And so to learn that actually human behavior and activity is more than matter, is more than physics, is actually kind of revolutionary. It can be very transformative for people who are stuck in that you know despairing malaise of, gosh, is that all this is about? And so not only are we, not only is there sort of two levels of like matter and and then, you know, let's say life, there are multiple levels, each with their own law-like behavior and appreciating phenomena in the universe as behaving at its own level. It becomes crucial for understanding it more fully and to relating to it more accurately. And then last thing I guess I'll say about that for now is that to appreciate those different levels operating within us as well is, is important so that we understand what we're made out of and the different levels to our own being. It can be very, again, I think life-changing and transformative at the level of meaning. Yeah, that's very rich because, you know, not only do we have matter going to life, but before that we had, you know, again, if we assume that the Big Bang is at least an approximately accurate story of our of this particular universe we find ourselves in or this neighborhood of the universe or however the cosmologists ever figure it out, there was a period before the concept of energy and matter even made any sense, right? There was there was a unification when there was no difference between the forces. They were all, the, they were all this undifferentiated thing. And then first the strong force broke away, and then the weak force, and then electromagnetism. Uh, we still don't understand how gravity fits into that story. But you know, And then there was an epoch where the universe was only energy, and then the energy ter- uh, particles formed. And then there was a period when the particles were basically blocking the energy because they were so moving so fast they reflected all the photons and so there was no transparency about 300 i think it was 300 million years after the big bang approximately the temperature and size of the universe grew to be big enough that now the photons could move past the particles and the universe became transparent each one of those was an emergence then of course the ones along the way that you know gravity plus the fundamental laws of physics took the random distributions or maybe pseudo-random distributions, we're not sure which, of matter. They were 
unevenly spread around the universe. And so gravity started pulling them together. And guess what? Another emergence. If you'd just seen clouds of helium and hydrogen floating around in space, it'd be pretty hard to predict a star. But as it turns out, as gravity pulled them together, you reached the point where the force of general relativity interacted with the fundamental laws of physics to produce fusion. And then suddenly everything changed again, right? The amazing flush of, uh, flux of energy. And truthfully, we're in some sense a little side cycle from, from that pattern of emergence, which has happened, of course, again and again in the history of the universe. Well, gosh, there's so much there. And yes, so uh, you're starting to kind of narrate the full big picture, big history story that emergentism is trying to sort of sacralize, you know, the, the creation myth that science has given us by understanding the sequence is is truly awe-inspiring and beautiful. And it's not just one of sort of meaningless meandering. It is this series of, I call it the flowering of the emergences that, that, that unfolds. And Harold Morowitz wrote a great book uh, on this topic. It does a good job. It's called The Emergence of Everything. And he goes through these different stages, or at least, you know, as he was conceptualizing them. And one of the things, though, there are a couple of things I'd, I'd, I'd zoom in on there. One is, if we appreciate that, as you were noting, things used to be more undifferentiated, right? You go all the way back to the singularity of the Big Bang, and then you get all the 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 fundamental forces before they'd kind of frozen out and, uh, and, and broken symmetry. It's easy to think about that as a state of perfection of like, oh, wow, radical wholeness and oneness of everything. What's been really interesting, though, is to consider that actually it's the opposite, that that was the kind of state of, of, of least integration and because you have least, the least amount of differentiation. So it was the least complex that the universe had ever been. Now, this is important, though, I think, because there's a deep tendency for lots of reasons, psychologically, culturally, to always want to look back and romanticize, you know, some prior past condition that was perfect and, and sublime. It's a very romantic sensibility of looking to childhood and seeing the innocence and the joy and whatnot. And we ultimately all become reactionaries. We, we want to be living in a prior age. And we usually tend to look to the past as being that golden age, right? But what the whole narrative of emergentism is about is that actually that golden age is, is where we're headed towards, not where we've been. And as we understand the, the big history story of reality better, we realize that this complexity, this complexification that's been occurring has been the story. It's been what's been going on. And so one of the things I wanted to zoom in on or you know, maybe even push back on is, yes, we're also tempted to see ourselves as being a sort of offshoot as part of this process. We're kind of, oh, we're just sort of on a side you know, arm of a galaxy amongst billions of galaxies and none of this really matters. Now, if you look at it from a complexity lens, that's no longer the case. The human mind is the most complex thing that we know of in existence. And we actually have metrics for this sort of thing. Like uh, Eric Chazon, who's a complexity scientist, you know, has free energy rate density. And he can chart the, the trajectory of complexification that the universe has undergone. And so if you look at like a whole galaxy, yes, it's vast and huge. And maybe when you look out at the night sky, it seems to be what's most important, quote unquote, in the sky, because that's what makes everything up. But at the level of complexity, it's really at the bottom of the rung, you know, from galaxies to planets and then to life, you know, you're seeing this exponential increase in complexification of the increasing density of energy and structural organization. And, and maybe we'll get into this, I don't know consciousness and you get sort of the relationship between complexification and consciousness that things like integrated information theory starts to help us understand better. And so in that framing, 
human beings aren't just some, you know, off, it's just some kind of one-off, some kind of accidental blip in the cosmic story. We're actually at the vanguard of the complexification narrative of the entire universe. As far as we know, we could meet aliens tomorrow and they could be billions of years, or yeah, let's say millions of years more complex than we are and whatever. But at the very least, we can situate ourselves in a complexification narrative. And in that narrative, we're actually really, I dare to say, important in the cosmos. Yeah, indeed. I'm really glad you mentioned my good friend, Harold Morowitz. He was actually my original mentor in the whole school of complexity back in 2002, and we remain close friends and sometimes collaborators up to his death. It was a resource to him in the book he wrote with Eric Smith on the origins of life, for instance, and things of that sort. A, A truly wonderful human being, not just one of the smartest people I ever met, but one of the best you know, he was just, uh, everything about him was good. And interestingly, he was a Jewish atheist, but he was also the advisor on science to the American College of Catholic Bishops. <laughs> and he got along with them famously. They loved him and he loved them. You know, he's just that kind of guy, right? And he big red cheeks, big red, red Santa Claus type cheeks, the tremendous human being. Before we move on, and you actually foreshadowed some of the things we're going to talk about. Talk a little bit about the, the the trap that this despair of modernism can cause. And I sometimes call it naive Newtonianism. You know, famously Laplace said, you know, give me the position and the movements of all the particles in the universe and I can predict all of history. And Napoleon asked him, well, where's God in your story? And he said, I have no need of that hypothesis, right? One of the famous snappy answers. Good thing for him. Napoleon was an Enlightenment guy and not a an imperial ruler in the pre-axial age, or it would have been off with his head, I'm sure. But if people are in, in this, you know, our education, unfortunately, I was one of these. I would say when I was 14 or 15, I was a, a science nerd, and I was a, a naive Newtonian. And it would be really a good thing for people to start learning much earlier about things like deterministic chaos, which is you know the idea that even if the world is entirely deterministic, and we don't know the answer whether it is or it isn't, as a practical matter, the unfolding of complex systems are entirely impossible to predict with any any precision. In fact, you know the average naive Newtonian never learns this, and and if they do learn it, they don't learn it until college. While you can calculate with Newtonian mechanics the orbital dynamics of two bodies, it doesn't work for three. Right? Mm-hmm. It's crazy. Yeah. You know, that the the nature of complexity is such that the the initial conditions have to be specified with infinite certainty, essentially infinite certainty, even if you assume the universe is entirely deterministic, which we don't know the answer to that. The evidence is still is still unresolved on whether the universe is deterministic or not. But from a uh, you know a perspective of how the world actually works, it's clearly not deterministic, anywhere near ours or any even conceivable ability to, to predict the unfolding of systems. And in some sense, we have educated our people with this naive Newtonianism so strongly that th- that then becomes an attractor for this kind of despair. You know, okay, what's it all mean? Doesn't mean anything. It's just jiggling around. Then the, the last thing I'll do before we move on to the next level about the topics you were just talking about is that we think about the very beginning, you know, the Big Bang, or I don't know if it was actually a singularity or a near singularity, but sometimes way back yonder in the billionth of a second after the origin, as you said, complexity was approximately zero. 
but also entropy was approximately zero, right? And since that time, both have increased, uh, which is very, very interesting. And I think you mentioned it. The second law of thermodynamics at first seems kind of grim, right? Oops, the world is winding down, ends up as the universe ends up as heat death, etc. Oh dear, oh me, Eeyore, right? Well, might be might be the case, but if it is, it's a trillion years in the future. And frankly, I'm not going to worry too much about what happens in a trillion years. And as you point out, it's there's some possibility that what we call dark energy, though that's just a name for something we don't understand, might save the day. I have my doubts, but it might, but I don't give a shit. I've got a trillion years to do interesting things. That's plenty of time, dude. And during that time, complexity has been increasing and up to, as far as we know, the pinnacle of human complexity is either the human brain or human culture, depending on how you choose to measure it. And by many of the you know measures of complexity, a human brain is more complex than, say, the sun, which is so much bigger and consumes so much more energy, et cetera. And that has been this gradual ratchet of complexity over time through a whole series of emergences, which, as far as we know, can't happen at the very high temperatures in the sun. You know, the fact that the the earth had certain temperatures and certain chemical constituents, had metals, uh, very important in Harold Moritz's work on the origins of life, for instance, allowed these various ratchets of emergence to occur, which somehow led to the human brain. And yeah, so I guess one last thing on the science side before we move on to you know, the, the higher stack. You mentioned this one as well, Prigozhin and his theory of dissipative systems. You know, the, the fact that thermodynamics, second law of thermodynamics is true within a closed system, but take it away. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that's the crucial bridge, I think, and many others think between just the, the matter level and the life level, because when you go back and you look at the origins of the various scientific paradigms as they emerged in the early scientific revolution, as you say, and as we've been talking about, it was reductionistic and it was about particles in motion and that sort of a thing. And there was that naive Newtonianism that we could predict everything and everything through its initial conditions could be mapped. And then you'd have an understanding of everything that ever has been or will be. And that is now recognized to not be the case at all. And so that that has we've been disillusioned of that presumption. And, you know, maybe I, I would argue for the for the better because it's a rather gloomy one ultimately. But one of the things that as we as we not that I was there, as we collectively in the, you know, not the royal we, but the uh, the scientific we, as we discovered thermodynamics that showed up in the reductionistic worldview as a consequence of that worldview, as a consequence of people trying to do, for example, what Galileo did with 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 motion, but trying to do that with with energy, which even at that time wasn't really a full concept, but trying to kind of isolate things and understand how they work on their own terms, right? And so the initial study of thermodynamics was all about isolation in closed systems. And in closed systems, the energy dissipates and you reach equilibrium and the party's over. And so unfortunately, a lot of people took this and extrapolated it to, to, to believe that, well, uh, if energy isn't created or destroyed, and if the nature of energy universally is to just dissipate and to form equilibrium, well, then eventually all the energy in the universe will just do that and you know everything will reach a bland state of homogeneity. And 
that's not true. <laughs> it turns out that an isolated system is a very artificial context to study something like energy. And this is what Prigogine really pioneered with non-equilibrium thermodynamics in the 60s and 70s, earlier even actually, and found that when you open the system, and you're not doing the reductionist isolation thing, but you're actually connecting the system to its environment, you see something entirely different operate. You see the emergence of order. You, you see the emergence of structure. And this happens spontaneously, naturally. And I think the beautiful insight, the, the profound thing that, that to me starts to become philosophical and even metaphysical is that happens precisely because of the second law of thermodynamics trying to always even things out and homogenize them, right? So it turns out that, for example, the whirlpool in your bathtub will form to dissipate that gradient and you get that order precisely because it's more efficient at creating entropy than just sheer chaotic turbulence would be. So as it as we learned in the mid 20th century and i think as has not caught on yet to the rest of the general population and made its way into the general zeitgeist and worldview actually the world the universe is inherently creative it's inherently leading to structure the very law of thermodynamics the second law that people thought was leading to just you know homogeneity boredom equilibrium heat death is actually the very driver of this complexification process and the work of like Bobby Azarian, for example, or what he's done to kind of articulate some of these ideas. I know you had him on the show not too long ago. He protege actually, or studied with Moritz as well, but he does a great job explaining these mechanisms in his book, The Romance of Reality. And of course, Prejean does as well. But this leads to a very different conception of what the universe is up to and where it's headed, right? So if the universe is naturally complexifying, and if and I guess I'll touch briefly on this issue about the heat death, too, because I think it's also important. One of the other conclusions that was drawn in the latter end of the 20th century was that because the universe is expanding, it can be expanding at a rate and seems to be expanding at a rate where there will always be enough free energy in the system, right? Basically, yes, there is an increase in energy, I'm sorry, entropy in the system, but there's also an increase uh, in the whole system, which allows for a fundamental gradient to exist. And because of that, you can continue to have sort of endless complexification theoretically. People like Stuart Kaufman talked about that. Chazon talks about that at some length in his book, Cosmic Evolution. So this thermodynamic narrative that people were sort of adopting as, oh, everything is bleak and pessimistic and ultimately going to run out of energy and you know everything's going to die so nothing matters again, is actually not true. And that we are part of a system that is inherently complexifying by the very laws of its nature. And that to me is a very compelling, fascinating, interesting facet of reality. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. And yeah, for those who want to look it up, Bobby Azarian's podcast was last summer, EP 159. Very, very interesting. Bobby's work is is really huge, actually, as it turns out. One of the things that he makes a point of, and as do you, is that one of the things that has come from the complexification of the world, and particularly once we had life, you can make some arguments, weak arguments prior to life, but especially since life, is that complexity has been driven forward by its ability to learn, and much of its evolution has been towards learning better, you know, with learning being, you know, sort of very roughly having a model of 
local reality sufficiently accurate that you can use it for taking action that's useful for some end, usually in a Darwinian sense, the end of surviving to the point where you can reproduce. Would you buy that? Yeah, I think that that's a crucial part of the whole story, actually. And one of the things I liked most about Bobby's book is that that's sort of the essence of his narrative, of his integrated evolutionary synthesis, is that the complexification of the universe is fundamentally a learning process. And I think that that, that, that gets the whole, well, let's just say it gets something very crucial about this whole process. So that if you kind of chart that unfolding and you move from, okay, dissipative adaptation occurs and you get life and you get sort of, you know, primitive cells and that sort of a thing. Well, yeah, those things are going to need some basic model of their world to interact with in order to fulfill their biological necessity of reproducing in a Darwinian sense, right? So one of the things that's really crucial is the way that this all ties thermodynamics to Darwinian evolution. There'd always been this sort of catch-22 of, you know, well, survival of the fittest. Well, what's the most fit? Well, the thing that survives. Well, okay, how does that work? But by grounding Darwinian evolution in thermodynamics and recognizing that organisms seek to stay far from equilibrium, which is all built on originally a, a, an insight of Schrodinger in his very now famous book, What is Life?, who talks about basically organisms are always seeking to extract free energy from their environment in order to stay ordered and organized. He called that negentropy, but we can just basically refer to that as, as, as complexity and relates directly also to the free energy density rate. So if there's this thermodynamic process going on where organisms are taking in energy from their environment in order to stay far from equilibrium, and that that's happening, or at least gets off the ground in a spontaneous way, then once those organisms are around, they need to be able to navigate their environment. And the best way to do that ultimately is forming certain kinds of models of the environment so that the organism has a kind of representation of where they are. And from that point on, you've got something like a subject and an object relationship that's been set up, right? You have an organism that is the subject moving around, it's the agent, and you have the objective environment that it's operating in. And then you can see how the whole complexification process is one in which the internal mental modeling of reality, well, and it doesn't begin with mental, so let's just say the internal modeling of reality complexifies through these emergent levels so that when mind comes online and maybe because mind comes online, it's about a representation of reality that's that's going on. So one of the things I do in the book too is I kind of marry Bobby's integrated evolutionary synthesis framework, which he calls the unifying theory of reality with Greg Enriquez's work, which is called the unified theory of knowledge, because Greg's work focuses in a big history model using specific emergent levels and thinking about them as specific information processing systems. And so when you marry these two ideas, you you get this story in which, you know, starting from the Big Bang, you move out, toward, you get dissipative adaptation that leads to the emergence of life. Life models its environment and, and slowly evolves increasingly more complex and successful information processing systems, which are, you know, DNA essentially and encoded reality of the organism, at the level of life, but then nervous systems and the ability to have genuine mental modeling of your environment, which you get the level of Henriquez's mind. And then ultimately we get symbolic information processing, which is the culture level that emerges. So then all these things start to tie together. 
and we see that they're all part of the same story. Yes, indeed. In fact, Greg Henriquez has been on twice, EP59 and Currents 009, and he'll be back on at the end of the month to talk about his new book. So (laughs) that'll be fun. Now, this is where I do want to push back. I push back with Bobby a little bit. I'll push back some with Greg, not that much, push back more with you, which is this road from learning and knowledge. And again, keep in mind that the intelligence goes way, way, way back. You know, the the bacteria that can follow a glucose gradient, for instance, turns right if there's sugar to the right, turns left if it's sugar to the left. That is knowledge. That is knowledge that's typically embodied through evolution rather than online learning, but it's it's knowledge. And there's many, many ways that intelligence, I should say knowledge, it's intelligence. It's knowledge that can be put to work. And while our tree, you and me, came up and probably this probably comes up through the bilateral evolutionary tree. You think of it as fish and then amphibians and then reptiles and then mammals and birds. Happen to use the hack of consciousness. Consciousness, I would argue, and I think many people think about consciousness, and to the degree I have a day job following the science of consciousness is it. It is not the only way to have intelligence. And I think that an awful lot of the writing and thinking in this space gets over-anchored on consciousness from essentially an anthropomorphic, anthropocentric perspective. Hey, that's us, therefore it must be the most important thing. And I can give you a couple of nice examples that there is definitely alternatives. I did some research yesterday on this to make sure my numbers were approximately right. Termites and ants. You know, when you think about a termite, you think about the colony as the as the unit of intelligence. It's not the individual ant in the same way you are not your cell, right? So it's it's kind of metaphorically equivalent that an ant is the equivalent of a cell in a body, sort of, roughly. And the things that a community of ants can do are quite amazing. The same is true for termites. Now, if you were to look at them objectively, you'd say a colony of ants or termites, it's probably smarter than a mouse. The kinds of problems they solve, the structures they can build, some of them do farming, some of them fight wars. It's like, whoa! And they do so with zero consciousness at all. They do it with smells and chemical signals and dancing, and you know, it's it's really amazing. So I say, hey, you can get up at least as smart as a mouse without any consciousness whatsoever. And Further, there's examples in AI where we can have extremely high intelligence. Think of the Alpha Zero that learned how to play Go from nothing other than the rules in a few days to be better than the best Go player on Earth. Exceedingly intelligent in what is thought to be a difficult domain and no consciousness whatsoever, or at least I will stipulate there's no consciousness. The IIT guys would argue about that a little, but even they would say that the level of consciousness in AlphaGo is exceedingly low. And then another one that seems more like human intelligence, the self-driving car, you know, the, the one that we were supposed to have two years ago, but still don't, right? But we'll probably have it within my estimate would be seven or eight years. That will be quite amazing. It's, de- it's you know, all the hallmarks of intelligence is dealing with a complex environment, which is crazy ass agentic humans and their bad decisions and weather and, you know, random shit blowing across the road. And we'll deal with it more competently than a human. And, and again, even if you use the IIT formalism, the consciousness in a self-driving car is minuscule, much less than a, than a mouse, much, much less than a mouse, but vastly more capable. So I always, when I have these discussions with people, particularly in this 
kind of liminal web world that a lot of us live in, people, I, I believe, get over-anchored on consciousness and that consciousness is neat and it is us, but it is just one of multiple strategies for bringing intelligence to the universe. And of course, this becomes even more significant when we start thinking about advanced AIs. I work with one of the leading AGI projects and follow the literature pretty closely. And there's no reason to believe that we actually need to have consciousness to create an AGI that's, that can do anything a human can do and more. And I do believe it, it may be a shortcut. And oddly, my own work is partially on artificial consciousness. Uh, but I think it's a very clever hack. And I could go into it. We don't have time today on why it's such a good hack. And it's probably why M- Mother Nature discovered it in just this one line. It may have actually discovered it twice. There's some thinking that consciousness was evolved twice in two different forms, once in the bilaterals, the fish through us, and then the second in the large cephalopods, the squid, basically, and octopuses. Well, well, at first, I'd, I'd have to know what you mean. How are you defining consciousness? I think that's really key. So I know we're on the same page here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and of course, if you go to a, a consciousness conference, you find that people are all <laughs> over the place on this. Uh, I would say, you know, quite simply, that there's a subjective state, phenomenology, as Thomas Nagel famously wrote in one of the most influential papers in the science of consciousness. Uh, what does it feel like to be a bat? Right? Is it? Does it feel like something to be X? Yeah. In which case, then you have consciousness. Gotcha. Yeah. And if I were to put my my sources flag down, I'm of a John Cerulean, pretty much, which is that it is a biological thing that serves a purpose and has a considerable energetic and and informational cost, and and it exists in some biological chains and not in others. Gotcha. Yeah. So I'd say we're we're in agreement on the notion of what we're talking about, which is good, because I think there's a lot of equivocation that goes on around all these words, consciousness, intelligence, cognition, et cetera. And it's very easy to just, it's very easy to speak past one another if we're not kind of, you know, sharing the same terms. So, so I would disagree. Well, let me start right where I do agree. I would agree that self-driving car is not conscious. I would agree that alpha is not conscious. But I would disagree that an ant is not conscious. And my reasoning for that is ultimately informed by IIT, Integrated Information Theory, which to my mind is so far the best explanatory model for this, though we'll probably start getting into some philosophical weeds if we probe rather deeply there. But my sense would be, as you know, people like Christoph Koch and and, and uh, Tononi talk about, right, that that it that consciousness in the way that we're talking about it is just that flip side of structural complexity, provided that there's integrated information that's creating an irreducible whole, et cetera, et cetera. And so if that is the case, and there are also various ways of modifying IIT in certain ways, so it doesn't have all of its panpsychic you know, implications. But if, if something like that is the case, you can explain why alpha doesn't have consciousness and why a Tesla or auto, you know, self-driving car doesn't have consciousness. And it, it's that difference, right, between a kind of feed forward network versus that kind of complexity network. And they point to example, you know, the, the cerebellum in the brain, which is just has more neurons, I think, than any part of the brain, but it's an entirely feed forward system. And that, you know, it's not a conscious part of the brain. So you need a certain kind of structure to generate consciousness. And I would say with an ant, for example, you've actually got something like a a primitive nervous system going on there. And so you've got a fairly high level of integrated information. And now 
is an ant is an individual ant more integrated integrating more information than the colony that's an interesting question actually that could be that could be illuminating but i would i I think that that's kind of the key here right and if you if if that's your framework which it is my provisional framework for the time being until i find something better then i think you can really talk about consciousness going down certainly past humans and to animals and this is one of the things that Greg's model helps kind of flesh out a little bit because we can appreciate that there are intelligences at different levels of complexity with, you know, life has an intelligence in its DNA structure and in that level of complexity. But, you know, is a bacterium conscious? Well, I would say to the degree that it's integrating information slightly, it has a, there's something that it feels like to be a bacterium. And then, of course, you know, that's just operating at kind of a programmatic code level of DNA operating in its environment. But then once you get to, comp- you know, nervous systems uh, with like a worm uh, or an insect, then you've really got something that, you know, you've got a network of, of neurons that are inter- interacting with an environment and that's integrating information and that's going to be conscious. So I, I and the last thing I'll say, I guess, for now is that I do totally agree that there's a, a lot of slippery usage of the word consciousness. And oftentimes it sounds like what people are saying is that human-like consciousness goes, goes very far down. And I would, I would also, I would be in agreement with you on that. That's not the case. You know, what it feels like to be a bacterium and we can use a word like consciousness, but it's, it's almost, you know, a misnomer. I mean, it's certainly a misnomer at that point because what we equate with that word is going to be phenomenologically very different. And so I think there should be a greater emphasis placed on that. But that being said, appreciating the continuity between all these different kinds of consciousness and appreciating that this complexification that occurs has as its flip side deepening consciousness, if we take the IIT framework seriously, then I think it's entirely justified to say that the complexification of the universe leads to the emergence of consciousness, certainly of human consciousness of of our level, but indeed a whole graded stack of consciousness. So I don't know if there are points in there that you would specifically take issue with or. Oh yeah, plenty. (laughs) (laughs) I had a great discussion on the show with Christoph Koch back a ways, EP 105, where I'd say we fought each other to a draw and I consider that pretty good. Little old me against Christoph Cook. You know, he is a strong IIT guy, mm-hmm. right? You know, he actually does believe a light switch is conscious. And we had a quite interesting conversation. As I mentioned, I'm more from the John Searle biological functionalist perspective. And I think more specifically, for more a little bit more modern people, you could look to the work of Antonio Damasio and Anil Seth as two interesting people. And they make some, I think, pretty convincing arguments that it has almost nothing to do with integrated information. It has more to do with introception. Essentially, the the signals that come from the body that go to the central nervous system. And they, for instance, both give the examples of people who not only have no cerebellum, which is interesting that it doesn't have seem to have any function on, on consciousness, but also people have had most of their cerebrum removed, their cere- cerebral cortex removed, and they're still conscious. And in, in fact, some of them walk around and navigate in the world and go to the store. And that consciousness is actually fairly low on the stack of of mental capacity. In fact, the usual stack goes something like consciousness is the opposite of being asleep or particularly in deep anesthesia or coma so that you are, there's enough there so that you're inside this movie of yourself. So there is some sense of what it is to be you, but you might not be smart, intelligent at all or very, very 
unintelligent and still be fully conscious. And then the next level is sentience, which is where you have, uh, the only aspect about consciousness is it doesn't necessitate feelings or valences, right? Something could, let's say a fish, for instance, may have a a root consciousness that it's in its own movie, but doesn't get any feedback in the form of emotion or valences, while uh, sentience is typically a term used for that next level up where there are feelings and emotions. And then a little bit later, those get tagged to our memories. That was a big deal. Probably happened either late in the reptiles or happened both in the mammals and the and the birds, where our mem- our episodic memories are tagged with emotional valences, which have all kinds of implications. So, as you can see, I'm using consciousness in a very biological sense, and it's and, and it's not the be all and end all. Now, with respect to IIT and the phi calculation, the, when you do the math around IIT, you get a number called phi, which, according to the hardcore IITians is itself proof of a level of consciousness. Now, you can look at the work of Scott Aronson, who has developed some mathematical formalisms that will generate hi-fi, but are clearly not conscious, right? So my take is that phi is probably a measure of relative consciousness, but it is a uh, necessary but not sufficient attribute of our particular exact kind of biologically embedded and embodied consciousness. And, and I, of course, this is a big fork. This is a philosophical fork. Uh, if I'm right, consciousness is really interesting, but not cosmologically so, other than on the effect that it has downstream. If IIT is right, then consciousness is much more cosmologically significant. But I would say that the evidence is not in on it at all. In fact, if anything, the, the evidence points in my direction and away from IIT. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, this could be, we could, we could keep going down this one for a while, but I, just a few things real quick. I, I would say I would, I would, all right, a couple things. One would be, I think that we can still in either case, as you say, appreciate a cosmological significance to consciousness, even if it's not uh, fundamental right? In the sense that, you know, life shows up relatively late, but if life has some causal significance in the cosmos, then that's going to be significant. And so like what happens later on downstream, I mean, galaxies weren't at the beginning, right? But now they dominate the universe. So to suggest, oh, well, at the beginning, there weren't galaxies, so they don't really, uh, they're just a blip, right? So either way, and of course, obviously, as you say, yes, if it is fundamental, then it's baked into the very, you know, fabric of reality. Um, One of the things I do think that can be helpful about taking the IIT approach and a panpsychic approach more generally. Obviously, one of the strongest arguments for it is a, as a resolution of the hard, the famous hard problem of consciousness, which if you take a, even an emergent kind of small e emergentist account of consciousness is still a sticky one. And so people like Philip Goff and those who articulate ideas about naturalistic dualisms, that fundamentally there is sort of an interior and exterior of reality, and that goes all the way down. I think that that's a very promising field. And I think that it it resolves some questions very satisfactorily. Of course, it raises other questions. But I would say again, though, that you don't have to take that approach in this emergentism that I'm articulating. I think either one of these models about how we articulate consciousness and its origins, they're, they're telling the same story. And wherever that 
data leads in terms of whether consciousness is fully emergent or whether it goes all the way down. It's certainly being amplified by complexification and to the degree that a human organism and its complexity is required to have the kind of really complex form of consciousness that we experience. And that there seems to be certainly a, a profound correlation between the structure of the organism and the kind of, let's just say, cognition or intelligence or potentially consciousness that it has. So these things still overlap and relate. And uh, I think the basic narrative is there. Just for the sake of wrapping up you know, all loose ends there, I would also push back on the idea that a fish doesn't, isn't sentient. A fish is an organism that has a nervous system, and the idea that it wouldn't therefore have valence is very stark, or you know, I, I would just push back on that because I think you can understand valence fundamentally as being the forness or the againstness of the well-being of the organism, and that we can, you can be an organism that has a very minimal sense of consciousness, but it's going to have a strong sense of, is this good for me? Is it bad for me? And if, if, if what is good for me, we're calling you know, pleasure and what's bad for me is we're calling pain, then you know, I don't see how an organism like a fish or even, a, an, again, an ant that's going to have some form of a nervous system at play doesn't have some kind of valence, some kind of pleasure, pain, access, some kind of uh, you know, value really structure, which is, again, the way that I think about this, because with the emergence of nervous systems, you start to see the crude form of value emerge in the universe. Something is good or bad, you move to it or away from it, you're attracted, you're repulsed. And again, these things complexify into higher order values. But yeah, just for, for bookkeeping purposes, that would be an interesting thing to explore. Consciousness versus sentience, certainly at the level of like a fish or a, a nervous system organism. And a lot of work going on there, and uh, and I would also just make uh, we could go down this rabbit hole for days. But a final thought is that a fish may well react to you know another fish biting its tail off at a way that it does not involve consciousness. In the same way, as it turns out, that if a ball is thrown right at your face from short range, you will actually react in an unconscious way because your consciousness is actually fairly slow. It's designed to operate at about 250 milliseconds cycle time. And there's a cutoff that goes right through the thalamus from the V1 level. It's right, quite amazing. And your hand will come up and knock the ball away, and you'll have no idea why. And so I think you have to be really careful about thinking about what are conscious contents. One can have pain signals, for instance, without having emotions or valences associated with them. Your body could just react. But anyway, it's another question for another day and well above either of our pay grades. <laughs> but to get on you know, to the next step where I think we'd love to have a, you know, a, a good discussion here. And again, this is sort of metaphysical. You know, listeners know I hate the word metaphysics. And I often say when I hear the word metaphysics, <laughs> I pull out my pistol. Well, uh, I, don't, I don't have a pistol today, but as Brendan can see, I got my big Randall M1 fighting knife, which has got like a seven-inch blade on it. It's a really scary looking thing. It's quite excellent, actually. But anyway, and that is life. You know, how, what is the nature of life to the universe and the emerge and emergence, right? You know, and, th and this goes back to a, the regular listeners know I talk about all the time. It's just the Fermi paradox. Fermi, the famous physicist, went by some young physicists having lunch at Los Alamos who were talking about, you know, is there 10,000 sentient or intelligent or conscious civilizations in the galaxy or is it 100,000? And he famously said, well, where are they? And that's been the Fermi paradox that, uh, if you run some numbers and make some assumptions about various things, you can get all kinds of numbers about how many technologically capable civilizations there are in 
the galaxy, let's say, let alone the universe. And unfortunately, it's totally dependent on about eight numbers being multiplied together. And when I was 14 and a naive Newtonian, I said, oh, sure, got to be 100,000 in the galaxy. Otherwise, what about all those Asimov and Heinlein stories? How could they, they couldn't happen without all this other intelligent life. But as I've got to learn much more about this, and this is one of my most intense hobbies is trying to think about the Fermi paradox and talking to people about it. I am now completely agnostic. In fact, I just had Bruce Damer on for two episodes recently, one of the leading thinkers on origins of life. And I've had Eric Smith on as well, another leading thinker about origins of life. He'll have a different story. His closer to you. He believes that life is very likely in planets like Earth. Bruce is somewhere between agnostic and pessimistic. And then when I really pushed him, he said, maybe just once in our galaxy. And, and, and this has, there's so many, this gets back to emergence. And this is where it ties it all back together again. For instance, the machinery that does error correction on, a, on the DNA, even of a bacteria, is a remarkably complicated and complex system. It's certainly complicated. And uh, in the mathematics of evolution, there's something called the error catastrophe. When you go from one generation to another, if the error rate between generations of the informational substrates above X, you can't build very high with evolution. And I had four hours, one of the, probably the most intense conversations I ever had in my life was with Stuart Kaufman about this exact question, which is, we both got to this point. Hmm. How in the world did we cross this amazingly thin ridge from the pre-DNA world to the DNA world with all this machinery for error correction when we had a high error rate informational substrate? It seems impossible. And we just, after several hours, we just said, we're just going to have to leave it there. Maybe a miracle occurred. Who the fuck knows, right? And, and it may be that it's just such a very low probability event that it only happened once in the universe. And the other one I point to a lot when we get down dirty on this is the move from prokaryotic to eukaryotic. You know, bacteria, classic prokaryotic, small, relatively simple, still complex as shit compared to a rock, <laughs> mm -hmm. but, you know, compared to you or me, not that complex. And then the eukaryotic cells were, you know, thousand, hundred times bigger. And they apparently ha it happened only once that an archaea, which is like a bacteria, but different, ate one or two bacteria instead of digesting them, somehow captured them. And it produced and at the same time, this is so crazy, it developed a nucleus around the DNA so that it was more well-defined. And then we got something closer to the standard model of mitosis and uh, meiosis. And you look at that possibility. How, how could that How did that happen? Right? And why did it only happen once? Right? It's really quite amazing. So those filters could be emergences to Harold Morris's idea that an emergence is a pruning rule. And it, it rules out other things from happening. And it's, to my mind, entirely possible that we are alone, not only in the galaxy, but in the universe, and that this has huge moral implications. If we are alone, we have an unbelievable obligation to the future not to fuck it up, right? And this is actually what drives my passion for Game B and radical social change, is that, you know, that will be able to kill off life, but we could at least kill off advanced life relatively easily. You know, we could knock ourselves back to, you know, single cell animals. I could easily see us doing that. But if we do, we're fucking up the trajectory of the future of the universe for a trillion years if we're the only people out there. And until we know it's our moral obligation to be extremely careful about our, about our life system. And then 
the other, this is why people say, what's your meaning in life? I go, it is this, if we, until, until we know, we preserve everything, we, all the complexity that we can. So let's use your language. We want to preserve all the complexity. But at the same time, we want to safely figure out if we're alone or not. And of course, we may not want to be shouting about it because <laughs> uh, maybe there's a lot of predators out there. We don't know. But we do want to listen carefully, want to send some probes to other stars. And over the next 10,000 years, we ought to be able to figure out if we're alone or not. And if we are not are not alone and they're not predators, then we can join the galactic civilization. And who knows what kind of emergences come <laughs> from that? Uh, or if we are alone, if we are alone, there's an amazing question. What do we do? And I would argue it's our destiny to, to bring the universe to life, that life is more interesting than not life. And interesting, Harold, when pushed hard on the question of the DNA and the ridge and how hard it was, he would sometimes say, you know, I don't rule out spermia. You know, the idea that, that the basic machinery of life came from other stars and maybe even seeded intentionally by some other civilization. And, and I, I've, I've amended that to say, maybe it happened twice. Maybe first they seeded us with the equivalent of bacteria and archaea, and then later they seeded us with the equivalent of uh, eukaryotes. So it could be that, that our destiny could be the, be the panspermians, right? To seed the universe with life, maybe multiple times, and just watch the experiment unfold over billions of years and then go play with our offspring later. Yeah. But we just don't know. Don't know. Fortunately, there's, there's some empirical evidence that will be turning up soon. You know, we'll, we'll learn about Mars. Does Mars have no life? Never did. Does it have life that's the same as Earth's life? which is very interesting, probably it evolved on Mars because it cooled off first and then was knocked to Earth by a meteor. And then we're soon, soon as in 100 years, we'll be able to explore uh, Enceladus and Europa, the moons of Jupiter that have water oceans. And do they have life? Is it the same life or is it different life? You know, we're about to be able to study the gases in extraterrestrial planets. So we're about to get some data. But right now, I would posit agnosticism. Yeah. Gosh, there's a lot there. I, <laughs> I'll i take, yeah, I mean, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll dive into a little bit of that in my perspective, I guess. I would say a couple things. One, I think that this framework that I'm articulating in the emergentist book, for example, is amenable to either of these answers. And I am myself agnostic to the degree that, well, if we don't have empirical evidence and you know, what are we, what are we going off of? What is our evidentiary base until we kind of have proof? Then I think the most responsible thing to do is, yeah, you have your best theories, but ultimately you're kind of doing informed speculation. Now that informed speculation does lead me to agree with other people like Carl Sagan, who suggested that life is common and where the conditions arise up at pops. I could also be very easily persuaded otherwise, depending on if, you know, some really solid mathematical argumentation were presented, et cetera, et cetera. But the point being, I think either one of these scenarios still is very much in line with and, and accords very well with still a, a broad emergentist frame. It's just the difference of, are we late to the party or are we starting it? And uh, I, I think that either one of these still doesn't change the fact that the universe has been complexifying and led to the emergence of life. And then life has this incredible capacity to keep reproducing. And I agree. I do think that the future does lie in spreading that. I like the framing of bringing the universe to life. I think that's, I think that is, I would agree with that 
meaning, a sense of meaning or, or a, a telos to, to our existence of trying to do that. And that's going to require, obviously, a cultural project to do that level of, of complex activity. And so I think that we do well to start naming that and moving towards that end. So just wanted to say up front that, yeah, either one of these, you know, whether we are currently alone or not, I think either way, the narrative still pans out. There are reasons, again, why I, I find... I've been persuaded on this. I used to think that we were alone. And then as over, I would say the last, what, 40 years, the the thinking around this in the kind of cosmological astrophysics community seems to have really shifted pretty profoundly. So that now I would, it seems to be the case that more or less the default consensus is that there is likely life out there. I think when you look at the numbers, and again, when it becomes a numbers game, you can always find all sorts of new numbers to bring in that can counter that. But as I say in the book, that you know, astrophysicists estimate that there could be anywhere from 300 million to over 40 billion Earth-like planets in the Milky Way galaxy alone. And then when you consider the whole universe is you know billions, if not trillions, of galaxies, just on those metrics, it seems. Ah, oh, well, that's you know when you put it that way. But there are other lines of argumentation. I mean, when the Earth just after the Earth formed, basically, was when we see life. You know, the we keep finding life further and further back on the planet. And that's surprising. It would seem to be the case that if it was just a total fluke, why does it basically appear right when it was possible for it to appear? That's a line of argumentation that's interesting. It's obviously incredibly durable. I think that though the whole panspermia idea, while compelling, doesn't really answer this. It actually just pushes back the issue, you know, because that life it's, had to evolve yeah, exactly. at some point. Yeah, it's a classic turtles all the way down argument. Right. Yeah. So it's it sort of though, I mean, it, it does at least suggest that, well, then life evolved more than once. But I mean, clearly it had to have gotten started, right? So whether that's on Earth or whether that's in a planet, you know, however many billions of light years away and however many billions of years ago, again, the, the basic emergentist narrative is still the same. But however, I would say in these agnostic situations, and maybe this is kind of even particularly sort of a meta-modern approach, whatever answer brings you more meaning is, I'd say, the roll with that one. I find it always interesting how one man's trash is another man's treasure. You know, for some people, oh, if we're entirely alone on the planet, then life is meaningless. And for other people, oh, we're entirely alone on this planet and in the universe. And that means that life is inherently meaningful because we've got to bring the earth to life or the, bring the universe to life, rather. Yeah, that, that is interesting. I've had people be quite surprised by that when I tell them that's my meaning. And they say, wow, that's, I mean, I would be so depressed if we were the only ones here. And I go, I'm not. I'm just saying, let's be careful, motherfuckers, right? <laughs> that's what I take away from it. Not not to be depressed, quite the opposite. If I knew there was a, a hundred thousands, you know, advanced civilizations in the galaxy, then frankly, I'd be willing to take more risk. It, it, quite the opposite, right? If, we, if there's a hundred thousand of us and one of us goes away, Big deal, right? It's not that big a deal. But anyway, that's that's just a different way to perspective. We burned up lots of time on lots of interesting topics. You have about another twenty minutes or so, sure. maybe. Yep. Yeah. All right. Let's because I do want to get to the the kind of the punchline of your book, uh, where I can push back even more. This will be fun. <laughs> and this is where we take what we've seen so far in our 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 discussion, and and then you start to call it God, and that's when I go what. Why? You know, to my mind, God is a very moth-eaten old concept, conceptually similar to Santa Claus, you know, to your point of does it make you feel good? Well, you know, yeah, Santa Claus makes four-year-olds feel good <laughs> and act good for two months each year, right? But I don't consider that proof of the existence of Santa Claus. So let's accept everything 
let's accept IIT, let's accept uh, life is relatively easy. What does any of that have to do with God? Yeah. So again, I think it's important to kind of get into the definitions, right? Because God, and this is the point, actually, God means different things to different people. So now my background is in religious studies and, and, you know, I've, I've done a fair amount of, you know, reading in the field of religion and reading across, you know, large time spans as well. And when you do that, you know, you see very clearly that over the course of time, religious traditions evolve so that even if you're a devout person today, let's say, and you adhere to a particular existing religious tradition, your conception of God is likely very different than the people's conception of it was when that religion was founded, let's say. And there might have been multiple God concepts that emerged uh, in between there. What I try to do in the book is to tie this complexification narrative of big history that leads from matter, life, mind to culture to cultural evolution, which obviously is a part of that narrative, and to the evolution of the God concept within culture. And so by doing that, we're able to use a word like God, or not just like God, we're able to use the word God and the idea of a God concept to talk about a religion of complexity precisely by intentionally engaging in cultural evolution, sort of consciously evolving culture. And consciously evolving culture means shifting cultural ideas, cultural paradigms, adding new cultural production into the mix so that things change and develop. I think that one of the things that I find very compelling about this narrative and in bringing together these various strands is that when you look at cultural evolution, and this kind of helps tie back into what we were getting at at the beginning of our conversation, there's a, a, a really fascinating connection between psychological development and cultural evolution so that you can in some ways map the changing of cultural epochs to the development of the human individual psyche in, in, in certain ways that, that can be very helpful and explanatory. And so what that allows you to do then is think about how a word like God has been interpreted or is interpreted, I mean, we can look around and see people doing this, uh, in different ways according to different uh, developmental psychological stages. And people like James Fowler have done this in terms of stages of faith. In some ways, integral theory gets at this, at least from kind of a more Eastern perspective lens. And when you do that, you notice that, yeah, there are distinct God concepts that come online at different developmentally appropriate periods. And that is true of both the individual life and the collective life. Now, you mentioned Santa Claus, right? So Santa Claus is a developmentally appropriate idea for, let's say, a four-year-old, right? If you're believing in Santa Claus when you're 30, then you know we might have a problem here. So what does that mean? <laughs> now, I would say that all of our ideas go through a transformation of like character. And so a word now, I mean, you could even think about this, right? So, you know, actually, I think there's even a meme out there where it's like when you're a kid, you're excited, you're waiting for Santa Claus to come. When you're an adult, you are Santa Claus, right? You you are the, the person who comes downstairs and <laughs> does the presents and everything. And without being flippant, I mean, I, I, this just occurs to me, but I think I'm suggesting something similar to that. I'm not de I'm not describing a God that is supernatural. That's part of a two worlds mythology. I'm not describing a God that is somehow utterly transcendent, divorced from the imminent world. I'm describing a God that is part of the imminent world. And we are the self-consciousness of that entity. And, and you can think about that developmentally, right? In the sense of, you know, Jungians would call this withdrawing the projection where we are projecting something out there. And then we 
realized that actually it was in here. And this all accords very well, actually, with what we know about that differentiation that we were talking about earlier, because as we differentiate and the subject-object relationship becomes clearer, we lose our magical thinking, we stop confusing ourselves with our environment, and we learn to withdraw those projections. And so the God concept that I'm articulating is a God concept that's in here and is a God concept that is, yeah, the, uh, the notion of human subjectivity and consciousness as the vanguard of the complexification process. And that's how I'm meaning it. And for me, it's also tied up with the notion that this is something that we can shape. This is something we participate in shaping. That is what culture has been doing with the evolution of religion. And if religions really are deeply, profoundly important, necessary, meaning-giving, I think we're in, it's incumbent upon us to try to articulate religious frameworks that fulfill those psychological and social roles while, do, while being uh, true to reality. And so I'm using the word God in that context to uh, try to facilitate that as an aim and, and to do that kind of religious construction project that people like Berveke and others and, and even Wheel have, have been discussing. So yeah, there's a lot there. Yeah, let's compare and contrast your take and Verveke's. I did a search on the book, and you used the phrase, the religion is not a religion five times, yeah. right? So you, this is clearly part of how you're thinking about this thing. And yet Verveke would not use the G word, right? And that's why he calls it the religion that's not a religion. You know, he talks about his ecology of practices. He talks about psychotechnologies. He talks about ceremonials. He talks about all kinds of things. But he doesn't use the God word. And, you know, we talk about the, you know, the, the parallels between psychological development, sociological development. And this is me speaking, not for Vakey. I think I did. I probably say this when I had him on my show and he probably recoiled in horror because <laughs> it was a little too hard nosed, which is that to my mind, the enlightenment was childhood's end. We should stop believing in Santa Claus. Right. And let's just. Think about the world. I like Verveke's work a lot. I like your actually. I love your last chapter. By the way, don't don't think I'm just going to beat you up constantly. <laughs> I think your last chapter is great. But but I, I don't still don't see the need to. Why one would want to call it God? Yeah. When well, Verveke doesn't explicitly doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a great question. So it is yes, very intentionally within this kind of shared. I would say it's kind of a shared project that especially. Folks in this liminal web space, the metamodern space, uh, are, are are preoccupied with and find interesting. You know, when, gosh, so I, you know, Verveke and Layman Pascal and I have had a series briefly over the course of some months where we were talking about scaling the religion that's not a religion. So I've been in dialogue with Verveke and, you know, and in many ways I consider this a project that is engaging multiple people in this community simultaneously. So it's not in any way, you know, sort of a, I'm certainly not trying to appropriate Verveke's work. In fact, I see it as, as collaborative, but it's also, there are differences. And I think that part of it is trying different things in order to see what might work best. And I think that you need a healthy diversity if you're going to have an effective project that can speak effectively to multiple demographics. And anytime you might have a particular bias in one area or orientation, it's very helpful to bring other people into that so that you're able to cover more ground, as it were, and, and you know, help realize this kind of transformational project that, that we're, I think, collectively engaged in. So just saying that, but there are very big differences, too, I think, in how we're going about this. And I think that talking about the G word is one way of getting into those differences. A couple things. One, 
Verveke and others in this space who so far have largely been preoccupied with this issue have focused on practice. And I think that that reflects some of where this community is coming from culturally and the ideas that already are sort of in the mix. You got a lot of people in the scene who are coming to this question from a a Buddhist lens, or at least with a background in Buddhist practice, certainly a kind of Eastern emphasis. There's a big integral theory contingent in the scene coming from all this. And again, you know, deeply steeped in kind of meditation practice, et cetera. However, if you look at the population of America and and the West more broadly, you don't find a great deal of Buddhists among us. You know, we are Christian or culturally Christian. And so that tradition works differently, has different orientations, has a different kind of just whole sensibility and theological bent. And one of the crucial differences there is the emphasis of narrative and mythology. Now, again, if you're coming from a tradition that emphasizes practice, you might see the story element as tangential or supplemental or superfluous. But in the Western tradition, narrative and story and myth are crucial to the understanding of what religion is about. I also think that it's important developmentally to appreciate that as well. There are different developmental stages at which narrative is more important. Um, You know, formal operations level and into that, you know, you can start dealing with practices and thinking rationally and stuff. But mostly we come from a narrative basis we make sense of the world through story. One, I mean, the, it would be hard to understand if you if you don't agree with that. The success of people like Jordan Peterson or Carl Jung or Joseph Campbell, who have been out there advocating for the power of myth and the role that that storytelling plays in meaning making. And so, in some ways, I'm coming at it somewhat from that background. I'm coming at it from just a kind of strategic regard for this project for trying to think about how this you know, would effectively scale and what sort of components are important for a religion, even if it's a religion that's not a religion. So there's all that involved. And I could say a lot more about all that. One more thing I'll say, though, is that I think John's very right that a word like God suffers from a lot of equivocation, right? I mean, he's talked to many people about this, that, that you know, the, like Augustine's use of the word God and someone in Sunday school, they're using the same word, but they mean radically different things. Now, I think that makes him hesitant or reticent to then engage, you know, in such equivocation. Whereas I look at it somewhat differently. I think it's a it's a potential power for incredible cohesion. It's a, a way that we can use shared terminology that slowly reveals deeper elements of itself as a person develops and as a culture develops. You know, we use a word, we use all sorts of words that their meanings have shifted. And we don't say, oh, we need a new word for this, or we've got to throw this word out, right? We accept that culture evolves, and then we can kind of fold in previous meanings into this new meaning. And the more depth, the more richness of your own sort of complexity of thought, the complexity of culture, et cetera, affords you the ability to find deeper meanings in these words through time without throwing them out. And so you allow a, 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 well, a religio, a tying back, you allow a tradition such that these things are really tied together and you allow for the cohesion of a community such that not everyone has to be at the same, you know, level of, you know, depth and and complexity of their thinking about everything. And of course, no one will be on the same level with everyone else. We're all different. We all have our own strengths and weaknesses, et cetera. But by having certain core concepts that can cohere communities, it opens up a possibility for the kind of diversity of a community to exist so that 
And this goes all the way back to the religions forever, you know, that there's the kind of exoteric and esoteric qualities, right? And the deeper you kind of sink into the tradition, the more of the esotericism comes out and the more practice and the more kind of experiential elements unfold. But that's a process. It's a developmental process. It's an evolutionary process. It's a cultural process. And so I think that it's important to, yeah, maintain these ideas in the field so that we can have that, that connection both to the past and also to others. So that's, again, one, one idea. And I, I hesitate, but there's you know, more I could say about this. Maybe just real quick, the last thing I'll say is that I find that maybe along all these same lines, right, certain words contain certain associations. They're evocative in very profound ways. I mean, you think about archetypes and kind of Jungian thinking in that vein. Certain things are going to generate a sort of like energetic response and a kind of feeling that's associated with them. And I think that one thing that we need and that's sort of missing from a purely practice-based element is aesthetics. It's art. You know, when John and Layman and I talked about the scaling, it was called the artful scaling of the religion that's not a religion. We need, and I know Game B has been interested in this element too, you know, you need a, a cultural aesthetic component as well. And so for me, that's, that's the stuff of religion. That's, that's the, the myths and the stories and the culture and the architecture, et cetera, et cetera. And so using a word like God is one of those things that ties that together, brings out certain evocative feelings and sensations and ethical relationships, aesthetic relationships. And so, yeah, I feel like we shouldn't throw it out however much baggage it has. Cool. I'm going to, as a former, as a retired business guy, I'm going to put it in a really crude business analogy. John and Jordan Hall, let's say, are the Duesenbergs of the early auto world for the fancy folk. And you're the Henry Ford. You're building the mass market product. Well, let me, let me, so I would, I would disagree, obviously, (laughs) but I I would say this. (laughs) I don't think that this distinction per se breaks down along like elite common or, you know, high complexity, low complexity axes. I think it breaks down along certain cultural axes and what tends to be associated with something like spirituality. It, if I go to most parts of America and I say, hey, I'm really into spirituality and they say, yeah, what do you, what does that look like? I say, oh, well, you know, I, I, uh, I meditate and I, I circle and I, I have conversations and I and we do dialogos. They'll be like, that's not religion. <laughs> and maybe there's a degree in which that is willingly owned up to in the notion of a religion that's not a religion. But I would say that a lot of that also comes from a notion where if you're if you're kind of concept that you're coming to the discussion with already includes certain elements uh, or doesn't include certain elements, then that 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 connection isn't going to occur for people. And so I would say that what I'm trying to do is adjacent certainly to what they're trying to do. And I certainly don't devalue practice as you mentioned in the last chapter of the book, and that's what that's all about. But I do think that if we're going to individually psychologically deal with the meaning crisis and collectively culturally deal with the meaning crisis, we need to engage in cultural production through mythopoeia and symbol making and storytelling, both because I think that that's something crucial to what I think of as the category of religion, but also, again, from a kind of design level, let's say, uh, perspective. I think that those are essential components, let's say, for the broader demographic. And I count myself in that demographic, so it's not you know dismissive. 
Yeah, so you're not only you're actually you're actually Henry Ford's marketing guy, even better. <laughs> I like it now. And you know, I know John and I know Jordan Hall really well. We've been you know close collaborators for more than ten years, and neither of them have got an aesthetic bone in their body when it comes to <laughs> you know how to tell a story to eleven year old kids. You know, for instance. And so I absolutely agree that whatever this thing is needs aesthetics, narratology, you know, branding, you know, color schemes, all that stuff, right? And so I feel better about the G word so long as I know that it's from Henry Ford's marketing guy <laughs> and not from the, not from the Vatican, right? <laughs> Man, we've had a great I love this conversation. It's yeah. been great. Well, I want to do one last thing, and then I'm going to give you a chance to talk about practice and ethics. Sure. And that is I do want to piss on the omega point <laughs> a little bit. Okay. <laughs> Which is that, uh, you know, this is the sort of God-ish thing that you bring into it. You know, what's his name? Pierre Chardin or the fuck, you know, these guys have been talked about for quite a while. But, but it's got some just basic scientific problems with it. You know, let's take IIT, for instance. Let's actually hang it with its own petard. Tononi in his book famously proves that a community of people can't have a collective consciousness because the bandwidth isn't sufficient, for instance. And so this idea of the omega point would require to even get a little bit of omega point to get beta point. <laughs> you know, you'd have to wire the brains together very, 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 very deeply. And he can even, Tony can even tell you how much you have to wire them before it flips to being a collective consciousness. And that don't scale too well. And then, oh, by the way, we have our good friend, the speed of light. So if we want to have a universal consciousness, it becomes fairly incoherent when we realize that we have to get phi high enough for the collective to be higher than the subcomponents uh, and do so within the constraint of the, of the speed of light. So as I ain't buying the Omega point. Okay. Yeah. So let's take, uh, let's take that in turn. I should definitely clarify then. I do not in any way mean to imply that the Omega point is necessarily some uh, collective consciousness hive mind. And I think it's actually very important to be explicit that at least for me, I don't, I don't really want that. I mean, you know, we, one, one doesn't always know what is in one's best interest. So, you know, it could be that, Hey, hive minds are great and, you know, don't knock until you try it. But I'm generally of the mind, uh, the mind that we do this best when we retain our individuality and that precisely maintaining individuation is crucial for this. So yeah, I really, I, I don't want people to equate the Omega point with like, oh, well, I'll plug our brains in and all this and that, because actually I think that it, that would be sort of tragic. I, I wasn't familiar with the actual mathematical limitations of a kind of Tenonian IIT hive mind. I'm glad, I guess, to learn that there are some, because I don't think that that would be a positive outcome. So when I talk about Omega, it is very much well, so, okay. So that being said, then it's like, well, what am I talking about with Omega? By the way, just as an aside too, and something I think very valuable that the integral folks bring in to this uh, conversation that's really important is that there's a lot of confusion around individuals and collectives. And, you know, the Ken Wilber kind of quadrants does a good job at making that distinction so that you can be an individual with integrated information, having a conscious experience, but then you can be in a big group of those sorts of individuals. And it doesn't mean that you all just sync up and form one hive mind. And that, in that sense, IIT and, and integral theory kind of overlap very well. And I think it's important to appreciate that. So I think for me, Omega is largely, I'll say two things. It's a, it's a hypothetical kind of placeholder, at least. So let's deal with that first. No, let's, let's come back to that. The first thing I'll say, I guess, is that one way of thinking about the Omega point 
is that it is it is simply whatever is the most complex entity in the universe. At any point in the universal complexification process, there's going to be something that, you know, is the most complex. It could be it could be some organism on some planet that is just, you know, super high fi, it could be maybe some vast collection of things that somehow has managed to create a kind of really grand uh, conscious entity by integrating various, you know, uh, smaller individuals together, whatever. But there's something that's going on there that is that is maximum. And, and, and here's, I guess what I'm getting at is we could be that. I mean, that actually accords very well with your idea that if we're the first to the show, we could be the Omega point We're we're, we're carrying the flag, we're carrying the torch, right? So that's one way to think about it. That's right. Currently, currently the smartest guy on earth is the Omega point, right? <laughs> well, currently let's say the most, let's just say the most developed, I guess, though that becomes dangerous. And then, you yeah, know, it's like, yeah, oh, whatever that oh, let's, yeah, well, well let's, just, let's, let's just be gross about it. The person with the highest five, <laughs> right, we'll give we'll give them the high five, and that's the uh, that's a, a current. Well, you know, one of the things that I think is important though too is that we uh, there's no one metric that I think we should just fall back on and emphasize. In the book, I talk about at least you know free energy rate density. I talk about phi, but there are others. You know, at the model of hierarchical complexity is another model. There are multiple models for for thinking about complexity, and there are also what I find fascinating about this process is that there are multiple domains all mutually informed by and being transformed by the complexification process so that it's not just that you become more conscious and get more phi. You also become more free. You have higher degrees of freedom and agency. You are more powerful. Like there's more energy coursing through my body than there is in well, anyway, you know, like you can you can make these comparisons, and so it's not just it's not just phi, right? I, we become more complex, more conscious, more free, but also more moral. You know, like um, the moral sensibility widens, the the expanding scope of moral regard occurs through this process as well. So I think if you're going to talk about an omega point, you have to consider all those things, and and who's to say that that's all of them? You know, maybe, and I haven't gone down this route yet, but maybe beauty is another part of it. Maybe really thinking about these transcendental like truth, uh, goodness, and beauty. Uh, maybe there's a maybe we'll we'll get to a point where we can understand beauty through a complexity uh, angle. I don't know, but I'm just saying that uh, whatever is going on with the complexification process unfolds across various axes, and hypothetically, there both is something right now that is sort of maximally that I would argue, and two, this is the placeholder idea. It's just an extrapolation, you know, in the same way that Hubble and others looked at the, you know, redshift and 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 then later with the, you know, cosmic microwave background. And we were able to extrapolate backwards. All right, if things are expanding, then follow it back. Where did it go? Okay, singularity. This is sort of the same idea. It's like, all right, but in the other direction, you know, all right, if the universe is complexifying and all these things are undergoing these transformational changes and we're 13.8 billion years out, well, there's tomorrow, there's next year, there's another billion years, right? And so it's just the hypothetical sort of placeholder variable for whatever it is that we're going in this process. And I also make the point too, though it can sometimes be lost, that I don't think of this as a static thing. This omega point isn't a point. It doesn't just, you, you're arrived, hey, you're done. It's um, it, it, it continues. It's a continually, infinitely kind of unfolding thing. So I use the metaphor of an asymptote or a limit, right? And we don't know where in this process we are. But when you look at one of these graphs of like an asymptote or a limit, there's a kind of more horizontal part and there's a kind of vertical part. And as you approach the vertical part, 
you're basically just there, you know, like what's the difference between 0.99999999, right? But these sorts of things do keep going on and they do keep developing and complexifying. And so even the omega point that I'm talking about is not some ultimate culmination with total, total finality and uh, is ceases to be dynamic and complexifying. So those are a couple points I would make. And I don't know if clarifying it that way does anything to uh, alleviate some of your concerns. It makes it much more sensible to my perspective, but also much less like God. It's just like, okay, the world is complexifying. There's always a most complex element. Okay, both, if we're lucky, if we're lucky, true statements, great. Nothing to do with God. But anyway, I will leave it to, well, go ahead. Okay, you can say something. Yeah, just a quick thing. I would say, I mean, think about it this way. I would say that you, Jim Rutt, are much more like God than uh, an amoeba. And that an amoeba is much more like God than, you know, a rock. And so that there is in this process of complexification, even in the middle parts of its unfolding, a, a, a an apotheosis in time that I think, I think does a lot to transubstantiate uh, the world that we live in and, and to imbue it with a kind of divine value. Because if that is the case, then we really do see the, the sacred and the divine around us and in the people that we interact with. So I would say, yeah, I, I, I think at the most, I think of the most complex things that I'm naming and these sorts of things as, as attaining more to that godlike quality than if I look in the past and see things. And so again, I follow that trajectory out and say, well, that's a good, that's a good extrapolation. Yeah, I'm fine with that. Uh, but ah, ah, thought just struck me, uh, an evil thought, right? If I take it seriously that we want to move towards the omega point, then that might say that we should be pushing for the techno-singularity as quickly as possible and driving towards transhumanism as quickly as possible. And I'll put my flag on the table. I don't think we should be driving at maximum rate towards either of those things, that we should be very, very, very careful as we approach both of them. But rushing to the omega point or moving forward to the omega point might say, pedal to the metal, guys. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good, important thing to clarify. And I hope people get this from the book, too, because I'm pretty explicit about this. I, I do not identify as a transhumanist. I do not. I, I, I guess maybe the most I'll say is I think that there might be some points of commonality and that I could definitely see some kind of working together across these different mimetic communities. But as I've heard transhumanism described, and as I've seen its kind of chief articulators and, and I don't know, torch carriers, I am very wary to say the least. And I think ultimately what transhumanism is missing, though, is the spiritual component right? I think that that's the the fundamental difference between the kind of purely technological transhumanism that gets espoused and what I'm calling emergentism because, but you see this also with uh, even integral theory. And uh, I think it's crucial to have a spiritual component and a wisdom component. Power is not a bad thing, but if you don't have the sense and the moral decency to appropriately wield it, then it becomes a bad thing. And so that's what remains missing in the current articulations of these ideas. You know, I wouldn't be worried about giving someone incredible power if they could wield it appropriately. And if I knew that it was going to be directed benevolently and thoughtfully, et cetera. I mean, we do that in democracies. We do that with our politicians. We do that in a developmentally appropriate way. We don't give, you know, five-year-olds certainly nuclear warheads. The concern is that our technological prowess is, is far outstripping our, our wisdom to, to maintain, to, to, to wield it. And so 
That's why I think that the transhumanists are wrong. And that's what I think something like emergentism can help bring into that conversation. We need to be talking about wisdom, insight, consciousness, learning, moral expansion, things like that. And uh, until we have that, we are in danger of, yeah, creating incredible power that will become more tyrannical than liberating or insightful. So that is a huge danger. Yeah, I think we're on the same page there. I mean, you know, if you say, will we move in the direction of integrating with other things, modifying our genetics? I think we will probably over a long period of time, but we better be fucking careful about it. It's real easy to run into a bad trap, especially as you say, if we do it before we have the appropriate wisdom and before we have the appropriate governance institutions, right? Today, holy shit, you know, you raise some money from venture capitalists and, you know, go out and, you know, you're Elon Musk with Neuralink. God knows what ends up there, right? And we don't have the governance structures and we don't have the wisdom. So proceed cautiously towards these things, we might think. All right. If you have five more minutes, we can either wrap it here, and it's been a great conversation, or I can give you five more minutes to talk about ethics and practices. I do think that would be helpful to bring this down from a fairly esoteric level, or at least a quite intellectually sophisticated level, down to, okay, what could people actually do? Yeah, definitely. I'm happy to go there. Okay, do it. Yeah, okay. (laughs) So, um, yeah, that that, that does kind of occupy the concluding part of the book because, you know, the book moves from logos, the ideas to the mythos storytelling symbol to religio and religio, as John Verveke can tell you, has a couple meanings. It could mean to tie, tie back to tradition. So you want to be grounded in a, in a community, in a moral community and intellectual community. So I focus a little bit on that in terms of some of the heritage and hopefully, you know, give credit where it's due uh, also as well for naming some of the people who have been pioneering these thoughts for, you know, centuries in some case. But religio is also about observance. It's about practice. And so that's the, the last section. So as we've been talking about, this complexification process is one that unfolds according to emergent levels. I use... Uh, Henriquez's kind of handy taxonomy of matter, life, mind, and culture. And if you appreciate that, then you can see that basically we are these things. Uh, We are material. We are biological. We have nervous systems and we have linguistic ego concepts and ideas and, and, and whatnot. And so we have multiple kind of subsystems in our body that make up who we are. Now, Lehman Pascal has been great. He really has been very influential in my thinking on this. He talks about a surplus coherence model, that that's what spirituality is really kind of affecting, that we both want to integrate our subsystems to create you know, that g- surplus of coherence and integration. And we, we also do that collectively. And that's kind of what defines spirituality and religion at the individual or collective levels. But yeah, to kind of get down to real brass tacks, what does that mean? It means that there is sets of practices that relate to these different levels that ascend in kind of their, you know, profundity. So at the matter level, you know, we're stuff. We've got to keep our stuff together or keep our shit together, I guess you could say. You know, this is in some ways banal, but it's also necessary, right? It's the basis of our being. I make the point that, you know, it's almost shocking that that like the message from a Canadian psychologist like Jordan Peterson to clean your room could be transformative to millions of people. But if you've got something broken at just your lowest level of keeping your shit together, then that really is a spirit of transformative process. So we can relate to our material substrate, I think, through this lens. And we can basically be agents of order and cohesion and integration in a world that, according to the second law, is also trying to always take those things apart and reduce things to homogeneity. 
and that that really is a, a, an enduring story as well that you see always reflected in the nature of at least historical religions of order versus chaos. So uh, there's that, but there's also things like relating to sacred space, creating environments that are effective at sort of channeling our approach to things in a in a in a way that is towards greater flourishing. Let's just let's just say increases our our general well being. We're also living organisms, biological, so we have a life level. And here, I think that it's important to, you know, lean into what that's about, which for me is about health. It's about vitality. It's about vigor. It's about maintaining yourself. Again, it can be confusing to me, but some people like, they just almost have a spiritual relationship to exercise and to working out and that sort of a thing. And while I tend to spend more of my time working out the, the, the brain muscle, I, I also want to... I recognize that as sort of a weakness, right? That there's a there's an importance to being able to maintain, you know, your health and your vigor, and that something like what Nietzsche talks about with the will to power is, I think, often construed as something that's sort of like anti-religion. It's sort of uh, nihilistic or it's dark or something. It's just purely our, our animalistic nature seeking power. But when you appropriately contextualize it, you can actually see that it's part of a broader process that is the same thing as the spiritual process unfolding. It's just a, a less complex layer to it. So anyway, I talk a little bit about the vitality, the vigor, focusing on things like diet. And that's all to maintain your your matter and your life levels, which again, might seem, I don't know, kind of banal, but are important. And I think it's important to appreciate them as sort of spiritual practices. Then you get the level of mind, which is about your nervous system and your whole kind of structure related to your animal brain. And then you're talking about things like embodiment and our emotions, which again, come online with that sort of nervous system level. So how do we regulate our emotions? How are we mindful of our reflexive actions? You know, how do we gain greater sort of you know, awareness of ourselves and our bodies? Therapy can be important here as a lot of trauma gets supposedly stored in you know, the body, let's say. I've known people who have found things like yoga and dance very therapeutically and spiritually fulfilling because I think it, it does something at the kind of neuronal level. As do actually entheogens, psychedelics have been shown to increase phi, actually, speaking of. And I think that there's something there. It certainly requires more study and we shouldn't be uh, flippant about it, but there's something sacramental about literally the expansion of consciousness through substances like that. And I think that, yeah, that, that could be an important part of a, of a kind of religious communal practice in a sacramental sense going forward. So that exists sort of at the mind level. And then finally, there's the level of culture, which I think about as various cultivation practices. And really, these are going to be the most profound, salient things because they connect most with our sense of identity and our idea of, you know, just information and, and, and ideas and ideals in the world as a, as a cultured person. So one of the things, again, that might seem relatively simple, but I've come to focus on more and more and more as a spiritual practice is learning, is education, is reading, you know, is continuing to develop the, the conceptual faculties and capacities of the mind is a profoundly crucial spiritual practice. And the whole idea of philosophia, of philosophy as being a spiritual practice is, I think, bound up with that. But it's also bound up with community. We should be doing this together. What we're doing right now you know, is, is part of this process. And I do very much connect with John's notion of dialogos here as being a kind of practice in that ecology. So community now, this is maybe one of the more unique things that that I am advocating as part of this system. I talk about mythopoeia, 
which is, again, if, if we're taking seriously the idea that the God concept evolves through culture, then we can kind of do that intentionally. And that means kind of boldly, well, making symbols and images and religious conceptions and putting our personal mythologies into the world, you know, it entails doing seemingly crazy things like starting religions, you know, hopefully with a sincerely ironic bent to them. So you don't uh, lead people off a cliff like lemmings, uh, which is for the record, not what I'm trying to do. But yeah, engaging in the process of moving the God concept forward is, I think, a spiritual practice that's really important. So those are a few things. Just to finish this up real quick, I guess I would add into the mix. You know, we're aware of complexity. We, at this stage of cultural evolution, have figured that idea out and all of its profound implications using our ability to think conceptually. And so we, I think, have a responsibility, an ethical, spiritual responsibility to be shepherds of complexity or shepherds of biodiversity. You know, and and for me, that's that's permaculture. It's you know, we should have gardens. We should you know, this kind of solar punk utopia that people or protopia that have people have in mind. You know, I think is all geared in that direction. That we should be harnessing the power of our ability to appreciate complexity and complexification by creating intentionally, consciously, a more flourishing world. You know, to maybe the surprise of people who only tend to think of human beings as a plague on the planet. Nature does not always create the most robust conditions for living things. You get deserts, you get soils that are not very strong, you get all sorts of things, right? But human beings can use the same capacities that we have to ravage the earth to create flourishing dynamic ecosystems that are more potent and more biodiverse and more complex than nature on its own could produce. And I find that, again, a very spiritually profound notion that we could be participatory in that and sort of work with nature. So uh, the last thing I'll say is we are aware of complexity that requires applying that to systems change and culture itself and doing things like culture uh, design and, and civilizational design where we try to make better systems. And so, you know, what Hansi Freinacht and the political metamodernists and Game B and, you know, other folks in the liminal web scene are, are all, I think, geared towards trying to do is is realize a more just and a better world by applying our intelligence and our complexity mindsets to these naughty problems and coming up with solutions. So yeah, the last thing I talk about in the, in the culture level is we are uniquely able to apply thought to itself. We can do a metacognitive thing. We can use reflection to be aware of ourselves. And as far as I know, no other animal can do that. That's a, that's a, symptom. That's a consequence of our complexity. And that allows us to gain a better sense of ourselves and to do things like various meditation, meditative practices and mystical practices that cultivate non-dual states and cultivate ultimately a development towards greater self-awareness, which in my kind of narrative here is what the universe is all about. It's the universe learning itself. And we are, we are that in, in motion. We are that unfolding. So I think that the spirituality of emergentism is, you know, ultimately in the, in the wisdom of the Delphic Oracle of Gnothi Sautone, of know thyself, because corny as it may sound, or maybe it sounds profound, you're the universe waking up to itself and complexifying to greater self-knowledge. So good for you. Great. I love it. <laughs> Don't have a single word to disagree with. All good stuff. In fact, the one thing that was new for me, actually, I found it, aha, uh -huh, I like this, was your proposal that learning itself be celebrated as a spiritual practice. 
and it ties in with some some psychology work around the so-called growth mindset. If people believe that they can learn and change, then they can. And if they believe they can't, they won't, which is quite interesting. And sort of building that into a community of practice could be quite profound. Liked it a lot. One thing you left out, I would suggest, is conviviality. You know, the the practice of being together and eating and drinking and dancing and, you know, telling jokes, et cetera. You know, there's many a Protestant church that's held together by the lunch after the service more so than it is by the service. And it's one of the things I've pushed in the Game B world from, from the very beginning, that every face-to-face Game B event needs to be designed to have a first-class conviviality component to it. So I'll, I'll just add that one on to, you, to your list. But otherwise, a great list. I totally agree. Actually, yes. That now that you now that you mention it, it's kind of a glaring absence. I was preoccupied with the the Dionysian for a while in my life because that was precisely what was missing. So whether you call it that or the conviviality, I think yes, that's entirely crucial. That is flourishing. You know, that's the uh, that's the surplus cohesion. That's the the sense that 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 something is is good and, and true and beautiful happening. So yeah, I I should build that in. But also, I'll say too woefully incomplete is all of this. So I both gesture towards, you know, my own intention to continue articulating these ideas, building them out, exploring them, but more so what I really want to see happen in a convivial communitarian way is to see other people pick up these ideas, pick up meaning making, pick up mythopoeia and engage this as really the cultural endeavor that it is. And again, obviously, Metamodern ecosystem and Game B folks are, are doing that in their various ways. But for me, yeah, I consider it a sort of spiritual practice. And we are, the phrase I use is we're building the cathedral. You know, we're, we're building something that out, outlasts us. And it's a communal collective project that hopefully makes the world more complex, more conscious, more moral, more beautiful, and just better. So that's what it's all about. Well, keep up the good work. This has been a fascinating, fascinating conversation. Let's thank Brendan Graham Dempsey. And we we covered a fair bit of the book, but there's a lot more stuff in there. So get the book if you, if you like what you heard today, Emergentism, A Religion of Complexity for the Metamodern World, which is available on Amazon, I know, and probably other places too. So if you liked what you heard, pick her up. So thanks a whole bunch. Thank you very much, Jim. Really appreciate it. Audio production and editing by Andrew Blevins Productions. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.